0: You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Well, good morning. I am so excited for uh, this final week of our teaching series, Hooked. No catchy intro today. We're just going to do a quick recap and we're going to dive right in. Uh, This teaching series, more than even uh, many of the teaching series we do, uh, really each message builds upon the previous one. And so this is a four-week series. And I don't necessarily do this every single time we conclude a series, but for this one, I would just say to you, if you missed any of these teachings, I would highly encourage you to go back, catch it on our website, on our YouTube channel, or even on podcast. Podcast. Uh, we Really, we've been asking this question, how do we change? And why don't we experience the level of change that we might expect as followers of Jesus? And really, week one, we talked about uh, this idea of, if you wanna become that you know, new you, new year, new me, new year, new you, it's, gonna, it's not gonna happen on your own. We have to be born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And the moment that we are born again, the moment that we put our faith in Jesus, It's not like we're all of a sudden on some easy street, that there's actually these three enemies that emerge and they rage against your soul to try and detract you from being the kind of person that God wants you to be. The first enemy is the devil, and uh, the devil essentially says about sin, it won't kill you. The devil's tactics are lies, and one of the main lies that the enemy has is that sin does not lead to death, sin leads to happiness. It won't kill you. It'll actually be the thing that you have been craving all along. Obviously, that is a lie. Uh, The second enemy we talked about last week was the flesh. And if the devil says it won't kill you, the flesh says, I want it. The only reason why the lies of the enemy work is they appeal to those sinful cravings and desires that we already have have. We define the flesh as your acquired taste for sinful things. And the way that we combat the lies of the devil are with the truth of God's word. And the way we combat the flesh is, as Paul says in Galatians 5, we crucify it. We kill it. And and practically speaking, how we do that is through spiritual disciplines. We discipline the flesh. And the longer that we commit to spiritual disciplines, the Holy Spirit will grow new desires in us. All right, you tracking? That's the first three weeks in about a minute or less. Today, we're going to talk about the third enemy of your soul, and that is the world. The world says everyone is doing it, and it's this insurmountable peer pressure that we face. the idea that sin is everywhere. It's in society. It's in culture. And if you thought going to middle school or high school had a lot of peer pressure, it doesn't go away when you graduate, Uh, that we face peer pressure from the world every single day. So how do we resist the peer pressure that we face From the world. We're going to look at a key teaching from Jesus in Matthew 7. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 7. This is the Sermon on the Mount. To be honest, we're going to jump around a little bit today, uh, but our main teaching text comes from Matthew chapter 7. Uh, This is the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous teachings. Uh, that we have recorded in Scripture. And near the end, Jesus is going to contrast. He's going to end with four different pairs. We're going to leave the first two of these pairs, and each one is a comparison and a contrast. And essentially what Jesus is doing is he's contrasting his way, the way of Jesus, with the way of the world. Let's jump in. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So the point that Jesus is making is that the popular way to live life is not going to actually fulfill you. It's not going to lead to life abundantly or life overflowing, and that most people in this world will go the way of the world. So can you, can you have that mental picture that Jesus is describing? So if, if it helps to close your eyes, but imagine you're standing at a crossroad and there's two different gates in front of you and one gate is narrow and the other gate is wide, very wide, okay? And you look down and it's kind of like that Robert Frost poem, have you heard that, that poem? What's it called again, the... The two roads or the, yeah, two paths, right? And one is the road less traveled. And you look down the narrow path and it's the road less traveled. It looks like, oh man, that way looks kind of difficult and restricting. And I don't see a lot of people going that way. And you look down the other path and it's like pavement and easy. And tons of people are going that way. Right, And so in this moment, what Jesus is saying is he's saying that the only way that leads to life is the narrow path. And when he's doing this, he is being very exclusive in how he's talking about what actually is going to lead to fulfillment both in this present life that we live and also in the age to come. Jesus is referring to himself as the way and also as the gate, also as the, the way that leads to the way that leads to life. Uh, he uses this same metaphor in John chapter 10. Jesus in John 10 has this famous teaching about himself being the good shepherd. Well, he also calls himself not just the shepherd, but also the gateway in which the sheep enter into the shepherd's care. John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door, if anyone enters by me, he will be what? Saved. Saved. Or in John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so when Jesus is teaching, and this is a consistent teaching from Jesus, the way of the world will teach you. And when we talk about the way of the world, really, it's not just one way. There's so many different ways. There's so many different paths, right? But Jesus is lumping all of the other ways, all contrasting ways of life together, and he calls those the wide path or the wide road. And he's saying, essentially, they all lead to the same place. Even though they might not all be the exact same path, if it's not the way of Jesus, it does not lead to life. And of course, what the world will say to you, if you believe that, if you believe the words of Jesus, is how can you be so intolerant? How can you be so exclusive? And we just have to admit that the nature of truth is exclusive. Because truth is not defined by democratic vote. It's not defined by popular opinion or, or the changing tides of culture. Truth is defined by reality, by that which corresponds with reality. And who is it that defines reality? It's God himself. And so we have these words from the son of God himself saying there is only one way that leads to life. Maybe it's helpful to explain it like this. Imagine that there is some kind of global pandemic or something like that. No, we'll not, let's not use COVID as the example. But imagine that there is this, you know, this, this condition, this, this, let's say this fatal disease, and you found out you had it, okay? And you went to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, you, know, you, d- you definitely have this, this terminal illness, and uh, that's the bad news. The good news is there's a cure. There's only one cure, but it's 100% effective. And if you follow my treatment, you're going to, you certainly will be healed. Like without a doubt, you'll be healed. Would you say to that doctor, how can you be so exclusive? (laughs) I wanna do this other, I wanna do another treatment that you don't recommend. And doctors say, well, you could try that, it's not gonna work. There's only one cure. And you would say to the doctor, you are so intolerant, I can't believe you, right? No. If a doctor said, And this is, again, a hypothetical situation. If a doctor said to you, you will absolutely be healed, but there's only one way. There's only one treatment. We would not berate that doctor for being too exclusive with his diagnosis. We would thank him. We would thank him for the opportunity that we would have at life. And Jesus is being thrown under the bus in culture by saying, how, can you, how dare you say that not all roads lead to life? How dare you say that not, not every road actually leads to God or fulfillment or enlightenment? And Jesus is very clear, not just here, but consistently throughout his teaching, that there is only one way that leads to life. So what do we talk about when we talk about the world well, Jesus doesn't actually use the word world in our main teaching text today, although he does use it throughout his ministry. Uh, this word world shows up numerous times throughout scripture. Let's look at two quick examples. Uh, the first one is 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, where John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's a very bold statement. That to love the world, as we're defining it today, this enemy of our soul, is actually to say that the love of God is not in you. And then to take it a step further, James, the brother of Jesus in James 4.4 says this, you adulterous people. Wow, okay. Prepare to be offended. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity With God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Does it sound like the world is a good thing? No. This Greek word, kosmos, similar to flesh from last week, right? Kosmos can be defined a few different ways. It's used numerous ways in Scripture. The first way is that kosmos can literally refer to the cosmos. The universe or the physical earth that we live in, which is not what those authors in scripture are talking about. Uh, The world can also refer to the inhabitants of earth, you know, the the world in, in a general sense is the people of earth. But the way that Jesus is referring to the way of the world, and these authors are as well, is the Greek English lexicon says it like this, the system of practices and standards associated with secular society or here's my simple definition for us today. The world is when sin goes viral in society. You know about things going viral, right? A new trend, a new craze. It's essentially where sin goes mainstream. And all of a sudden, everyone's doing it, and everyone says not only that that it's okay, but it's actually good. This is Satan's kingdom of darkness in the world at play. That's uh, when sin is popularized, it's a craze, it's a trend, sin is legalized, sin makes its way into even the laws of the land, and you've got to be really careful as followers of Jesus. Of course, we're supposed to follow the law, but we also follow God's law as our highest commitment, as our highest pledge of allegiance to God's law, and there are plenty of things that are legal that are not good in God's kingdom, right? So think about the Jim Crow laws that legalized racism, or even Roe v. Wade, the legalization of abortion. There are examples after example of things that are legal that are not good. Remember what Jesus said about the narrow road? It's more restrictive. It's more restrictive than the way of this world. Sin is institutionalized, and it goes mainstream. John Mark Comer talks about this uh, in his book, Live No Lies, and how sin is kind of reframed where, where people who are on the wide road, they won't call it sin, they'll call it anything else. This is what he says. Sin is recast as any number of things, freedom, human rights, reproductive justice, the way things are, nature, science, boys will be boys, anything but sin, And so there are plenty of examples in culture of things that God clearly says, do not do this, that culture or the mainstream or your friends or the social media accounts that you follow will say those things are actually not sin at all. And good and evil become based on an unspoken democracy of popular opinion, not on God's unchanging word. Uh, Theo Hobson, who wrote a book called In- *Reinventing Liberal Christianity*, and he's actually arguing for this perspective. I'm going to share, which we would, which I would say we should not hold to this perspective. But he says this about kind of pulls back the curtains on the ulterior motives of the world. He says this: what was universally condemned is now celebrated. So things that used to be wrong are now elevated and made right. What was universally celebrated is now condemned, so things that culturally were a, really, a good thing, a good value, now those things are condemned, and then here's the thing that, that gets me, and those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. If you're not going to join in in, in calling uh, evil things good, then actually you yourself are the problem. And you might hear things from friends of yours like, you don't really think life begins at conception, do you? You don't really think that sex is only for marriage. You don't really think that God created marriage for a man and a woman. You don't really think that greed is wrong. And the list goes on and on and on where good is called evil and evil is called good and the only real sin in the eyes of the world is to say that something is a sin. And it's very, very difficult for us to stand up against this enemy of the soul. Because everything that you see on TV, everything that you see on social media, every friend that you know who doesn't go to your church, they're all telling you the same exact narrative. And we have to ask the question, if Jesus is right, and there is only one road that leads to life and fulfillment and happiness, then why are so many people on the wide road? Why do so many people follow the way of the world? And Jesus has given us two of the answers for that. And we'll look at the third one in a second. But the first answer is because it's easier, right? It's easier. Think about that that idea of a narrow gate. Imagine that you have a lot of luggage you wanna bring with you and you can't really get past the gate. You have to leave your old life behind if you're gonna follow Jesus. Or in Jesus' own words, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him that it's, it's restrictive. The, the, the wide road, it's easier. There's no change required. You can be whoever you wanna be. There's no repentance required. There's no following God and his law required. And then there's that added bonus of everyone's doing it anyways, right? So it's easier. That's the first reason, the main reason so many people choose that path. The second reason is because people don't realize where the, desti- where the road is taking them. They don't recognize the destination. They don't recognize the idea that that road leads to certain destruction, destruction in this life, where all of the things that are meant to tell us that, oh, this is actually true freedom or true fulfillment or true happiness, it's instant gratification that fades in a moment and leaves you feeling worse than you felt before and chasing those same vicious cycles of gratifying the things of the flesh that we talked about last week. And it also leads us to destruction in the age to come. So people people follow that path because it's easier and because they don't recognize the destination. And as Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the what? The whole world and forfeits his soul. I mean, what does it profit you If you do whatever you want in this present age, but yet your soul is not saved from death. And there's a third reason that Jesus gets to, in fact. uh, And he gets to it in the following passage. In Matthew chapter 7, returning to our main text, verse 15. This is the third reason why I believe people choose the way of the world instead of the way of Jesus. In verse 15 of Matthew 7, beware of false prophets, By their fruits. The third reason why people stick to the wide road is not just because it's easy, is not just because they don't recognize where that road is headed. It's bad advice. It's bad advice. It's what Jesus calls false prophets. And we, we have to recognize that the world is not just systems and institutions and laws, the world is actually people people who embody that kind of popular culture mindset and thinking. And so how do you know who to listen to? How do you know what friends to keep? And Jesus tells us, don't just listen to what they're saying because sometimes what the, the message that the world has, it kind of makes sense, right? It's easy to be tricked in some ways. Like, oh, that, that actually, that sounds like really good Advice. I mean, to to use that example of the fish hook, which we've used time and time again, if sin is taking a bite of the fish hook, and if the the enemy says, oh, this won't hurt you, and the flesh says, that looks really delicious, what the world says is while every single other fish in the pond has a hook in their mouth, you should totally do it, right? You should totally do it. I mean it's not hurting me right now, right? And they're telling you that not only is it good, but it leads you somewhere good, where we know that the fishing line leads straight into the boat, where the fish is gonna meet certain doom. And this idea of bad advice is, how do you know which fish to listen to? And Jesus says, don't just listen to their words, look at their lives. Look at their lives, are there, do their lives have evidence? It's, you know, it's easy for someone to say, this is the way to live. But then if you look at their lives and ask the question, are they, are they experiencing fulfillment? Are they experiencing joy? Are they experiencing the fruit of the Spirit? Are they, are, are they the kind of person that I want to become like? And this is the danger in our hyper-digital world that we live in. It's extremely easy to just listen to a cornucopia of, of online preachers and I'm a fan of podcasts, I'm a fan of books, and reading, you know, authors, and all of that sort of stuff, and yet you have to be very careful, because there is no way that you can actually look at the fruit of those people's lives. You can, you can look at their social media profiles, but it's very easy to curate whatever you want on your social media profile. You can't see how, how that person interacts with a spouse. You can't see... You can't, you're not gonna see how they come across when you sit down at a table with that person. You can't measure the fruit in their lives. That's why I believe it's important for us as followers of Jesus to not just consume content, but to be plugged in to a local body of believers and to, to have teachers in your life that you know, you can actually shake my hand, right? You, can, you, you know I'm a real person. I'm not just a hologram. I'm not just a voice, a, a, a faceless voice. On the internet, And really, this comes to this question, not just of who do you listen to, you know, false prophets who look like sheep on the outside, but inwardly, they're ravenous wolves, but even the friends that we keep, the other voices in your life, the social media accounts that you follow. Psalm 11 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. It's that idea of you know, what counsel are you listening to? What voices are you subscribing to? And we need to be careful who you let influence your life. What voices are you listening to in your life? Who are the prominent friends? And for us, if we want to follow the narrow path, we need to listen to voices who are following Jesus as well. And for you, this is a very serious challenge. What are the ways that maybe you need to break ties with the world? What are the social media accounts you need to unfollow? What are the friends that that maybe maybe you don't not become friends with them anymore, but you limit the amount of counsel you're listening them to? You put limits on those relationships in your life. What are the radio stations? or even the TV shows, or the news channels, or the whatever it is that you need to actually put some better boundaries in place so that you're not listening to people on the wide road while you're trying to follow the narrow road. I mean, who do you wanna take advice from? I wanna take advice from people who are on the same path that leads to life. So how do you know who we can really trust? Well, ultimately, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you can trust me, that he's a true prophet as opposed to the false prophets. And if we put him through the same measurement and we measure Jesus by his fruit, we see that he perfectly embodies the fruit of the Spirit. Specifically, if you look at the fruit of Jesus, we see the fruit of love. He has so much love for us that he laid down his life on the cross for us. I think back to another very famous teaching from Jesus in John 3, verse 16. And it has to do with the world. John 3, 16, Jesus said this, for God so loved, what? The world. Even when we were enemies, even when we were ungodly, Christ died for the ungodly. God loves the world so much, not that he approves of all the practices of the world, or endorses the behaviors of the world, but he deeply cares for the world, like a father cares for his lost son, Jesus says in Luke 15, that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what, life. That's what God wants for you. God's law, his rules aren't to restrict you so that you have an unfulfilling life, it's actually to lead you to eternal life. And he says in verse 17, "For God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him." And so when Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying there's only one way that leads to life, he's not saying that so that people on the wide road feel bad about being on the right wide road. He's saying it so that they might be saved through Him. And I would just challenge that argument. Oh, it's so unloving to say that there's only one way to life. What's more unloving? To say that there's only one true way to life or to lead people astray to certain destruction? What's more unloving? To deceive people, to say that if that road actually does lead where Jesus says it leads, the most loving thing to do is to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to show people that there's only one way that leads to life. And I would just say to you today, if you've never responded to the good news of the gospel, the only way that we get onto that narrow road in the first place is by faith in Jesus Christ. We don't get there by trying. It's not legalism. It's not we try to follow these restrictions and rules on our own willpower. It's we enter through the door and the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And I would just say to you today, Jesus is the son of God. He died for your sins on the cross. He rose back from the grave and he wants to offer you a new life in him. And today can be the day that you pray and you ask God to forgive your sin and to lead your life. And you can, you can say yes to Jesus by getting baptized. We have more information about baptism on our website, but I would encourage you to say yes to Jesus as savior and Lord of your life. And when we do, Jesus is clear teaching is that baptism, is faith in Jesus, is not the finish line, it's actually the starting line, isn't it? We enter through that gate and now we're on a different path in your life. And I would describe the path that we're on as the path of discipleship. So we have these five different stages, we talk about it all the time, uh, five different plant stages is how we like to talk about discipleship. The before we are a follower of Jesus, your your pre-faith and there's just... Soil that needs the seed of the gospel sown into that soil. After you follow Jesus, you are now new to the faith. Think about a plant that's a little tiny sprout that it needs support, it needs nourishment, it needs encouragement, it needs spiritual disciplines to grow and to learn about your faith. Then you go from being new in the faith to being young in the faith and you don't have to be young in years to be young in the faith but there are certain barriers maybe holding you back, keeping you in a place of immaturity from reaching maturity. And so what you need is you need to start pouring out and living that selfless, that sacrificial life that Jesus himself embodied. And so it's through the, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? To serve and to give. His life is a ransom for many. And I would say to someone who's young in the faith, serve and give, Start pouring out just like Jesus poured out. You start doing that, you become growing in the faith, and you start to recognize when you start to serve, you start to give, you start to live your life for others, you're going to start growing. The Holy Spirit's going to start growing you, and you're going to be growing in the faith. But ultimately, the end destination for our, our discipleship to Jesus is to reach maturity, aka fruitfulness. And that fruit grows both the the characteristics, the internal fruit of the Spirit, but also the fruit of multiplication, that the fruit goes into the ground, and there's seeds in the fruit, and the seeds grow new plants. And so now we're helping disciple other people. That's ultimately the, the, the path of discipleship that Jesus has us on. When you say yes to Jesus, you now have a lifelong journey with Jesus. And the longer we follow him, the more fruit the Holy Spirit grows in us. And an encouragement for you, and here we're gonna get to really the main way we resist this seemingly insurmountable peer pressure that we face from the world, is you get on the narrow path, and you recognize while Christians might always find themselves in a cognitive minority, which means that ethnically, Christians are from, from every people group on planet Earth, but cognitively, what you believe may not be represented in the dominant culture, in the host culture in which you find yourselves. So Christians will be a, a cognitive minority. The ideologies of you know, the, the nation or the ideologies of the culture may not represent Christianity, certainly not perfectly, uh, is how do we fight that? How do we resist this enemy of the soul? And the reality is, while there may be more people traveling the wide road, the way of the world, you enter it through Jesus Christ onto the narrow path, and all of a sudden you recognize, "Oh, I'm not alone. We follow Jesus together. Look around everyone look around. You're not alone. This is not a sermon of me to you. This is us together. And there may be a ton more people in the culture. That are on the wide road, saying every path leads to God or heaven or happiness or whatever it might be. But when you are on the narrow path, we follow Jesus together. Here's our main point this is, this is the way that we resist the world. Resist worldly culture by participating in a countercultural church. There's some key words in there. We resist worldly culture by participating. Not by attending, not by listening to podcasts, not by watching YouTube videos of teachings, by participating. This is the active living body of Christ. Paul had a ton to say about being an active body member. That means you participate, you serve, you give, you, you're, you're active in the community. You're not a person who shows up and leaves. You, you want to get more involved. We are a family as a body of Christ, but we must participate in a what I would call a countercultural church. And what that means is a church that is not preaching the same message as the culture. A church where the good news of the gospel is not reduced to the good news of culture, which essentially, in our modern day, is what Mark Sayers calls a kingdom without the king. It's this idea that culture loves a lot of things that you know church has to offer. Deep community, acceptance, love, all that sort of stuff, but just not the teachings of Jesus and how we actually get to those places. The gospel of the culture is the kingdom without the authority of the king. The gospel of the culture is the kingdom with who as the king? With you, right? That's what the gospel of culture is. You're your own king. You make your own right and wrong. But The gospel of Jesus Christ is there is one Lord and we follow him. And so we resist worldly culture by participating in the church. So what is our answer to the world? It's the church. If you, want to have a, if you want to stand a fighting chance at not getting overwhelmed by the peer pressure of everyone you work with and every social media account that you follow and everything that's on Netflix, you have to be an active part of the local body of Christ. John Mark Comer says it like this, whether you define church as a Sunday gathering around a stage which is what we're doing right now, a much smaller community around a table, or as I would recommend, a mixture of both, we can't follow Jesus alone. And I would just echo those words. I resonate so much because that's really our strategy for for discipleship as Hill City Church, that we view what we do on Sundays very important. It's important to gather together. And even just for this, to know you're not alone. To gather together on Sundays, to sing and hear other voices of people worshiping God, to gather together around a common message from the word of God, to be united on truth, and to gather together around the Lord's Supper, which Jesus taught us to gather together and to to proclaim his death until he comes again. But I would just say this. For us, we really believe Sundays as insufficient in and of themselves, so if this is the only other time, if, you, if it's one hour a week gathering with Christians and the rest of your week is not surrounded by followers of Jesus, you need a community to not just answer the question, what church do you go to, but who is your church? Names, faces, who are the people in your life that you're practicing the one another's of scripture? And the way that we answer that question at City Church is a thing called life groups. And life groups is not just one element of you know, something we do, an additional program we offer. This is a central part of our strategy as a church. Life groups are the places where iron sharpens iron. They're the places where you truly know someone and their story, and you are known by them. They're the place where you receive and give support for someone who's in need. They're the place where you get accountability. They're the place where you confess your sins. They're the places where you pray for one another. There are, there are dozens of one another passages in scripture, and we don't have enough time on a Sunday morning to do those things, but we do in, in life groups. And a life group might look like you know, a group uh, of 12 people meeting in a home in the evening. It might look like a mentorship with, with two or three people. It might look like a prayer group. It might look like a Bible study, a men's group or a women's group. We have tons of life groups. And I would just invite you, if you're not a part of one, you can go to our website, you can sign up. You can sign up on a Connect card today. But I, w- I would say we need more than one hour together as a church if we're gonna face the world that we live in. Now, all that to say, one last piece of clarity here near the end for balance. Because one way that we might be tempted to swing the pendulum a little bit too far is to kind of say this. Okay, the world is all evil, the church is good, so we don't have to talk to those bad people anymore. I guess we'll just huddle together. I guess we won't engage with the world. And for clarity, that is not Jesus's vision for the church. We are called to be a countercultural community. We're called to be a community that is also on mission. Look at these words of Jesus from John 17. He says, I do not ask, he's praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them, from who? From the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This is where you get that popular phrase that that we are as followers of Jesus, in the world, but not of the world. But still, with that phrase, we might get the wrong idea, right? Well, physically, I live in the world, but I I don't want to associate with anyone from the world. Is that how Jesus conducted his ministry? No, he was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He consistently spent much of his time with the world. So you have to balance this. There may be relationships in your life that truly you do need to put boundaries or break ties, especially voices. Like if you're getting your your instructions for how you live your life from worldly sources, you need to take a serious look at that and change the radio station, right? At the same time, here's how I would verbalize the tension. And it is a tension. It's not pick one option or the other. It's a tension that we manage. The church is called out and sent into the world. So we're called out of the the Greek word ekklesia. It's the word for church. It literally means called out. It's people who've been called out. That means we're called out not to live the same way as the world. We're called out to be holy. We're called out to be a countercultural community. And that's what we've spent most of our time today talking about. But the church is just as much sent into. So instead of in but not of, maybe you would say called out and sent into. That's God's vision for the church. And for you, especially if you're already growing fruit in your life, you're a growing faith, or mature faith. In fact, what Jesus would do to you is send you right back out into the world. And he would say to you that we are supposed to be a city set on a hill to shine God's light into the darkness, that we are called to grow fruit, not just of you know, a bunch of us together with the fruit of the Spirit, and we all love each other, but we're meant to share that fruit of the Spirit with the rest of the world to sow seeds of the gospel in your community, in your workplace, wherever you are. How are you? One of our core values at Still City Church is making Jesus known in the neighborhood. And I would ask you that question. How are you making Jesus known in your neighborhood? How are you making Jesus known in your workplace? How are you making Jesus known with your friends and your family? We're not just called out, we're sent into We're sent into the world with the hope of the gospel. We're going to end by watching a video. Uh, This is a powerful video story uh, from John, who's right down here at the front, actually. And uh, it's a story of how God has used Hill City Church to make Jesus known in this neighborhood. Take a look.
1: I wasn't left with a lot of options when I was a young boy. So I decided to fight. What I decided is I would become a monster. And so I started lifting and bodybuilding and then competition and through wrestling and Russian Sambo and Jiu Jitsu. And so I became the monster. I took a gun and I tried to commit suicide. After I woke up and went through the mental ward and did all the all the, all the things you have to do in a certain situation like that. It was all over, except nothing had changed. Everything was exactly going back to the same. So I hit it even harder. And I got big, I strong, and uh, I got to 315 pounds at 5'10", 20-inch arms, and I was the monster. The problem was, is over time, there was still a shell left. And that shell left was my body, and now my body's paying a price for it. And um, I got to the point where I was very low and I found myself across the street from the church. And then things started happening. I remember I was reaching for the Lord, I was knocking. And nothing happened for a while, and one day I got a a card in the mail, I looked at the card and it said, new church coming, Hill City. And I remember walking out front and and looking, and I looked over at Boise High School. Uh, I looked around and I realized, that church is right across the street, it's right here. But in the past, I'd had some issues with church and so I was really wanting to make sure that I wouldn't get hurt if I, if I got close. But one night it was bothering me so bad, I just prayed and prayed and prayed and I, I needed a sign. And I said, God, please send me a sign. And it was interesting because something out the window, a, a flash of light caught my eye, it was pretty early, maybe five, six, seven in the morning, I'm not sure. So I look out the window and here comes Josh. And he's got the hair and he's got the guns and he's got this sign. And I'm looking out the window and he doesn't even know I'm there. And he plants this sign in the ground and takes this big fresh breath air, And and, and I'm thinking to myself, whoa, there's a sign. That's what I was asking for. And I look on the sign and it's got a big arrow that says Hill City, park here. So I was (laughs) really blown away by that. It started with the men's breakfast. I went to the men's breakfast, I met Derek Lee. I met a lot of really, really nice people there. And they just made me feel so at home and so comfortable and I knew Derek led a men's group, and I want to be more connected and more involved. And now that I'm in there with my comrades and my friends and these these people, I've learned so much. And I'm so thankful to have them as, as my comrades. I was sitting in church, and the spirit started hitting me. And Every word that Josh would say about cleansing, washing, baptism, it was like this energy was building up in me. I was so ready, it was almost like I was in football stance and boy, I, I just went right to Josh. Like This baptism thing, I, this is me, I gotta go, I need this. And, and, and Josh asked me a couple questions but he says, let's just do it. So they call me up I got in the water and Josh asked me a few questions and of course I love the Lord and and I dunked and the next thing I saw was Josh's arms out and then I realized his face was there and it was this big smile and he was wanting a hug. So I reached out and I gave him a hug and it was just the best feeling in the whole world. And when you have that, You don't need to be a monster. I listened to a a Nicole Mullins song that talked about uh, moving mountains, God will move mountains to come rescue me when I call. And it's not a mountain, but it's a hill, and it's a city on the hill that that was moved and placed right there, right across from me. And that was really big.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.